This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Today we mark a pair of 100th anniversaries, a century since the discovery of insulin and 100 years since the poppy was adopted as a symbol of remembrance. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon should be turned toward conquering this dread disease. It's been 50 years since President Richard Nixon launched the war on cancer in 1971, calling for an intensive $100 million quest for a cure. And while there is no single cure on the horizon, survival rates have increased dramatically in many cancers, and there have been powerful advances, including personalized medicine based on genetics, mammograms, colonoscopies, and other screenings are finding common cancers in early stages more often when survival odds are as high as 99%. And in addition to chemotherapy and radiation, there are now entirely new forms of treatment like immunotherapy and targeted therapies. Here at home, new statistics show that while cancer is still the leading cause of death in the country, the overall death rate is down 37% among men and 22% among women since its peak in 1988. Two in five Canadians are expected to be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. And while there are more than a 100 types of cancer, the top four, lung, breast, colorectal, and prostate, account for nearly half of all new cases. There's a new word to describe an economic trend, skimpflation, when instead of simply raising prices, companies skimp on the goods and services they provide. Many say it's all about greed and nothing to do with the pandemic at this point. Airlines are putting customers on hold for hours. Restaurants, bars, and hotels are understaffed and stretched thin. The quality of service seems to be deteriorating everywhere. Alan Cole, the former senior economist at the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress, coined the term skimpflation this past summer. An Israeli court has blocked the upcoming auction of needle stamps the Nazis used to tattoo ID numbers on Jewish prisoners at Auschwitz. A lawyer representing Holocaust survivors argued that such an evil item can't have an owner and the cruel artifacts belong to the public. Israel's National Holocaust Museum called the sale morally wrong. Dr. Aaron 
T. Beck, the father of cognitive behavioral therapy, has died at the age of 100. He revolutionized the treatment of depression, anxiety, and other disorders by prompting patients to focus on changing the way that they think about things rather than on conflicts buried in childhood. It was an answer to Freudian analysis, and while Beck's peers at first rejected it, cognitive behavioral therapy ultimately changed psychiatry. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This year marks a century since the poppy became a symbol of remembrance in Canada. We became the first country to adopt it after the cause was taken up by a French woman inspired by John McRae's iconic poem, In Flanders Field. In Flanders Field, the poppies blow. The poppies blow between the crosses. Flanders Field, the poppies blow. I learned about the history of the poppy from Stephen Clark, National Executive Director of the Royal Canadian Legion. Hard to believe that it has been 100 years ago this year that the poppy became a symbol of remembrance in Canada. It has a really interesting story about how it arrived at that point as well, dating back to the activity in 1921 and, in fact, even before that. So it was actually started by a French woman. That is correct. Madame Anna Guerin from France, she had an inter-allied poppy day scheme idea, and that was a way to distribute poppies, to raise funds to help soldiers of the First World War, and also to help children in war-torn areas of France. That was the, the reason for it, and she took her inspiration from John McRae's In Flanders Fields poem. Now, how did she even get to the poem uh, that quickly, I guess? Well, the the poem's written a few years earlier in 1915, and it was published in Punch magazine in December of that year. She had learned about it a couple of years later and thought that it was an absolute wonderful idea if people could wear poppies, and the reason being was twofold, again, to raise donations, but also as a symbol of remembrance. So she really brought the idea. And then when she came to Canada in 1921 and spoke to the Great War Veterans Association of Canada, which is the predecessor of the Royal Canadian Legion, it was instantly accepted. And Canada was the first country in the empire to accept the poppy as the symbol of remembrance. Wow, I did not know that. The first poppies, I think they were cloth, cloth, red cloth. They were actually silk. The uh, The first poppies distributed in Canada was November of 1921. They were silk poppies, and Canada had purchased two million of them from Madame Guerin. And interestingly, we ran out. It was so popular that people in various places across the country had to supplement the poppy supply by making their own and distributing them. Now, after that, we made them in Canada, but for that first year, two million poppies wasn't enough, and that shows what a great idea she had and what a great way to raise money for veterans. So I'm curious, are there any of those left? Are they on display somewhere, the original? The only original that I'm aware of is in the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. So you had the first one. What happened after? 
We did. In 1922, poppies were then started to be made in Canada at vet craft shops, which was a uh, undertaken by the Department of Soldier Civil Reestablishment, which was a, a government department. And they were made by uh, disabled veterans. And that continued on for a number of years. And the last vet craft shop was closed in 1996. Now, the poppies wow. that they were making there more closely resemble the lapel poppy that you're wearing today, but it was flat. It wasn't contoured. Still had a black center. Still had the uh, the flocking, the red flocking on top. But on the back, instead of being a plastic backing, it was more of a uh, thin cardboard. So that's what they looked like. They then evolved into the poppy that you're seeing today. Over the years, how much money has the poppy campaign raised? It varies from year to year, but on average, you are looking at approximately uh, 18 to $20 million is brought in. And one of, the, one of the wonderful things about the Poppy Campaign is that all of those donations that are made locally stay locally to help veterans in the local area. So any of the donations that people are putting into the boxes in towns and cities throughout uh, Ontario or other provinces do not get sent up to a provincial level or a national level. They all stay to help veterans in that area. And that's one of the real advantages of this Poppy campaign. And uh, I gather you're hoping sort of to get back to normal. I mean, last year there was a setback because of the pandemic. Absolutely. We are starting to get back to where we were pre-pandemic this year, thanks to the wonderful support that we are getting from Corporate Canada. We have over 34,000 poppy trays distributed at outlets and locations all across the country. We are now able to, in a number of locations, actually have veterans, cadets, other volunteers with those poppies, with those trays, so that they can engage with with people that are coming in looking for a poppy and perhaps have questions. So it is so good to be back in person. There are some restrictions we still have to observe, and we will certainly do that, but it is nice to get back to engaging with people so we can talk about the remembrance story and the importance of remembrance. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Just that. I hope that everyone does have an opportunity to find a poppy. And the one thing I want to say is poppies are free. Uh, If you don't have any money, that's fine. You can take one. We certainly accept donations. And again, all the donations that are received help with the benevolent comfort and care of veterans and in the promotion of remembrance. Stephen Clark, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thank you, Libby. It's been my absolute pleasure. That was Stephen Clark of the Royal Canadian Legion. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review coming up. It was one of the most important medical advances ever, and it happened right here. Insulin was discovered in Toronto a hundred years ago. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. The 
The discovery of insulin was one of the greatest medical breakthroughs ever, and it remains the only effective treatment for type 1 diabetes. A hundred years ago this week, the first experiments at the University of Toronto were successful. And while the credit usually goes to Sir Frederick Banting and Charles Best, there were two others who made it all possible. I reached Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, Professor Emerita in the History of Medicine at Queen's University. It is the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. So where would you rate that in terms of medical discoveries? Oh, it's a, one of the top discoveries ever in the world. And I think it's certainly the top discovery that came out of Canada so far. It was a cure for a disease that uh, killed so many children. It's a very widespread disease. In fact, its incidence is increasing in the world. And uh, prior to insulin, people who got this disease, especially the juvenile type, would die at very young age, and they would die horribly by basically starving, even though they had food. Let's go back to the beginning. How did Frederick Banting get the idea to, to start experiments looking for insulin? Fred Banting was a young doctor with a general practice in London, Ontario, and he was also trained as a surgeon, and he was very bored. He was he did a lot of reading in his evenings, and he got interested in the problem of diabetes because he, like so many other doctors, had seen tragic cases of it. And he read some reports that suggested that there was a secretion from the pancreas, from a special part of the pancreas, and that if he could isolate that secretion uh, and then give it to the people who lacked it, they could perhaps have their diabetes managed and controlled. So his idea was basically a surgical one to tie off ducts of the pancreas and let the pancreas digest itself and then catch what was remaining from the islets of Langerhans, which are special uh, glands embedded in the pancreas. It was an interesting idea, and although he ended up successful, it wasn't necessarily because of his original thought of how to do it. There are some people who say that actually his thought wasn't that different from what other people were experimenting with. No, indeed. Uh, Banting's uh, idea and his will to work on this project was just part of a huge international trend of scientists working on the problem. And there are some who believe that he, he really, or his team, we should say, wasn't the first, uh, that there were others who had isolated pancreatic secretions that had proven effective. Uh, what's remarkable about Banting and what the world recognized quite quickly with the Nobel Prize was that their team was the first to actually purify the secretion and be able uh, to use it clinically with remarkable results. He and Best, who was his student, who was helping him, they seemed to get all the credit, but it was really other people in the team that moved the whole thing along. It is true that we link Banting and Best. It has a nice alliterative ring, and we like the romance of that story, but... The most unsung of all the heroes in this story is uh, J.B. Collip, who was a Canadian biochemist who was working in the lab as well. And he was affiliated with the physiology department at the University of Toronto, and he was basically added to the team 
to help purify these various substances that Banting and Best were extracting from pancreases. And without collop and without the purification uh, techniques that he did, uh, they would have never been able to get a uh, clinically useful form of insulin. And uh, really, his contribution is what made it made it a, a success. The first person to receive insulin was a very sick 13-year-old boy. That's right. His name was Leonard Thompson. And uh, he was expected to die. And when Leonard Thompson was uh, given the insulin, his uh, blood sugars fell to more reasonable levels. And not only was he able to eat, he was able to gain weight again, which is what's happening when people eat and have diabetes, which is out of control. The food is simply not absorbed because insulin takes these nutrients into the cells. And he suddenly started to gain weight and energy, and he lived a long life. After this, they got a Nobel Prize really quickly. Yes, it's one of the most quickly awarded Nobels in the history of the prize. So they got the Nobel Prize when? 1923. 1923. And there was controversy over who got the money. Well, that's correct. The prize was uh, originally awarded to McLeod and Banting, and Banting took umbrage at the idea that McLeod should receive the prize because uh, McLeod hadn't been doing the grunt work in the laboratory. And at first, Banting didn't want to accept the prize. Then he didn't want them to give it to McLeod. And then finally, he stunted and he insisted that it be shared with Best, the medical student, at which point uh, McLeod shared his portion of the prize with Collip. And it is the only Nobel Prize that has been shared among four uh, people because even today there is a limit on the numbers who can share a single Nobel Prize, and it's capped at three. What did this all mean for Canada? It was a moment of great joy and triumph for Canada, especially Canadian medicine, especially Toronto, uh, because uh, we hadn't really been considered on the cutting edge of research up until that point. Uh, But here was a drug, a hormone that was going to be universally useful and is still useful now, a hundred years later, uh, and it had come out of this new, relatively young country. And uh, so, of course, it was it was very, very exciting, not just in medicine, but in, in the whole nation. Dr. Jacqueline Duffin, thanks so much. <laughs> My pleasure. That was Dr. Jacqueline Duffin on the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.